Just now turn to the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 32. Isaiah's prophecy chapter 32. We shall read the first two verses of that chapter. Chapter 32 of Isaiah, verses 1 and 2. Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness, and princes shall rule in judgment. And a man shall be as an hiding place from the wind, and a covered from the tempest, as the river of water in a dry place, as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. When I was uh, preparing uh, for this service tonight, I always had in my mind that these services were evangelistic services. And somebody said to me, remember, these services are for the young people. And what we need is a simple presentation of the gospel. And well, my answer to that is, we need a simple presentation of the gospel every day. But uh, so often we hear that today, we need the plain gospel, we need the simple gospel, but uh, we cannot have the simple gospel without the doctrine of the word of God, because the gospel, the simple message of the gospel is encased in doctrine. If you take that away, you don't have the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have some other gospel. You know, this is why today there are so many Gospels. This is why it was so in the time of Paul. There were so many Gospels, so many different renderings of the truth in such a way that it was a Gospel that was not the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, indeed, this was the case in the Old Testament times as well. And we need, this is why we have creeds. This is why we have statements like the Shorter Catechism, if you like, or the Westminster Confession of Faith, or uh, other creeds. When you look at the history of the Church, we need creeds, we need statements, we need the whole counsel of God, and without the whole counsel of God, then we do not have the Gospel. We cannot have a Gospel which is unbalanced. If we have a Gospel which is unbalanced, then we only have part of the truth. And we need the whole truth. There is no use in having, if we work out a mathematical equation, in having part of it right, in even having one figure wrong, in even having one digit wrong, we can result in the wrong conclusion. We can come to the wrong conclusion. And how sad that is. Remember what Paul said? If he or an angel from heaven or anybody else would come with another gospel, with that gospel which he had, let it be accursed. So it doesn't matter who it is, whether an angel comes with the gospel or whether some other great name will come to with the gospel, it doesn't matter. It has to be the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the simple gospel is encased in doctrine. And the simple gospel, if you like, is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Anybody in here tonight who will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. And that is a statement of the word of God. 
start us by the word of God tells us and that is the very essence of the truth to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and we shall be saved but again when we make that statement we have to say who is the Lord Jesus Christ who is the Lord Jesus Christ what does it mean to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and it's here at that very point that the doctrine comes in the devils believe and they tremble there are many who believe a lot about the Lord Jesus Christ there are many who believe that he came into this world there are many who believe that he did many mighty works there are many who will even proclaim his blessing and his riches and speak in his name and yet they do not know what it is to have that simple faith which the word of God speaks about. Remember those people at the last day who will say to the Lord himself, in thy name we have done many works, in thy name we have preached the gospel, in thy name we have healed the sick, we have cast out devils, we have done many wonderful works. But they did not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. They did not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for one reason, as I mentioned the other night, because they didn't know him. If they would know him, they would believe. If they don't know him, how can they believe in one whom they don't know? That is an impossible thing. That this sort of belief, this intimate relationship that the Word of, that the word of God speaks about and we label it as belief, how can we have that intimate relationship with one whom we do not know? That is absurd, that is impossible. And this is why we have to be so careful when we proclaim the gospel to make sure that we do declare the whole counsel of God. If we don't declare the whole counsel of God, then we fall short of the mark. And my word, we will have to stand at that last day and we will have to give, we will have to account for all our actions, for all that we do. And that is why it's so imperative for us to proclaim and to declare the whole counsel of God. We read here in this chapter at the first verse, Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness, and princes shall rule in judgment. But especially tonight I would like to draw your attention to the second verse, And a man shall be as a hiding place, from the wind and are covered from the tempest as rivers of waters in a dry place and the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. Just a word about this king. A king shall reign in righteousness. This of course is a prophetic statement. You don't need me to tell you that this is a reference to the Lord Jesus, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. How many kings we know of in the earth today, rulers, so many heads of governments we know of today, and how often we would like them to rule in righteousness, how flexible they are, how they bend, how they give in to pressure. Pressure comes from all sides. We cannot maybe sometimes be too critical of them, but all too often it is the case that they cave in under pressure, and again they have that element or whatever it is that we may term a sin within their own souls and they go astray in their judgment they fall short in their judgment when they are trying to work things out in government they do not work it out the way they should all too often 
And then we see all the problems in the world today. We see wars, and the Canada agree one, and the Canada agree amongst each other, and they fall short in many ways, and people suffer because of those who rule over them. And people have so much to complain about because of those who rule over them. But there is a king coming who will rule in righteousness. He will rule with absolute holiness. And he will rule in righteousness. He will not cave in. He will not give way. He will not give way for any pressure. When he will come in all his glory, he will show that he is king of kings. All other powers will fall down before him. And let me tell you this, he's ruling tonight. He's ruling now. He is ruling now. And you may ask, how is it that he's ruling now with all the problems in the world? How is it that he's ruling now? He's ruling now in the realms of heaven. He's ruling now in this world. And he's got all authority in heaven. And he's got all authority in earth. And he's got all authority in hell. And these devils in hell, and these forces which are against him, and he raised up their voices against him in this world as well. They are under his authority, and they are under his subjection. But now, they as if it were operate within his permission. And they can even blaspheme his name, and they can curse, and they can swear, and they can walk in disobedience if they like at this moment within this perimeter, if you like, within the circumference of his permission, but hitherto they shall go on no further. And now we may think, where is he? Where is this king that's going to rule in righteousness? I again make this point, he is here now. And he is ruling now. And he will rule and he will reign until he will put all his enemies under his footstool. You know, those people who blaspheme and those people today who are walking in disobedience to this king, the day will come when they shall fall down at his feet. Remember that time when that great Roman governor with all his pride, and when he said to him, do you know that I have authority to set you free or to condemn you? Do you know that? This is what the Roman governor wanted him to believe. But then we see, we see in the reply that our Lord gave, you have no authority if it were not given to you. It is the authority that, authority that he gave to him. We see in that statement that at that time he could call on legions of his supporters, on legions of these beings we call angels. And they could destroy all the opposition. Or tonight, every force in the world that is against God, they could be destroyed in a moment. But maybe I will speak about that in a minute. But there we also read that princes shall rule in judgment. And I believe that that is a statement relating to the people of God. The people of God, we are told in the word of God, are kings and priests. They are ruling. They are ruling in this world. They are priests in this world in a very spiritual sort of way. And these princes, because he rules in righteousness, because their king rules in righteousness, they're related to him and they will rule in his authority 
with perfect judgment too. But uh, let me go to this verse, and a man shall be on a hiding place from the wind, and a covert from the tempest. First of all, that part of the verse. The verse is in two sections. And a man shall be a hiding place from the wind, and a covert from the tempest. When we read these words, we see that maybe there is something unfamiliar about them. A man shall be a hiding place from the wind. This is not the normal Hebrew process of thought. This is not how the Hebrew people thought at all. The Hebrew people thought in a different way. And when I see this prophet, the Hebrew prophet, making this statement, a man shall be a hiding place from the wind, then I cannot help but ask, why would he say that? That is not what the Hebrew prophets used to say. That is not what the priests of all this, not what the psalmists used to say. You know, the psalmist uh, wouldn't say that a man was a hiding place for him. The psalmist in Psalm 32, for example, in verse 7, he says about God, Thou art my hiding place. Thou art my hiding place. And the same in Psalm 119, the psalmist also says to God, Thou art my hiding place. Thou art my shield. In the Hebrew people, they thought of God has been their hiding place. They thought of God as being their place of refuge. You know, we sang this evening that psalm, God is their refuge and our strength in straits of present aid. To the Hebrew people, to the people of God, God was their refuge. God was their hiding place. God was the one to whom they would go for protection from the tempest, from protection from the wind, for, for protection from their enemies. Whatever force that came against them, they would go to God, but not to man. How often their scriptures tell them not to put their trust in man, nor the son of man, but to lift up their eyes to the hills from whence their aid does come. But now we ask ourselves, now what does this mean? And a man shall be a hiding place from the wind. And again we ask, how can a man be a hiding place from the wind and a covered from the tempest? And then we have to say, well, we have to define our terms. What do we mean by wind? What do we mean by tempest? What do we mean by a hiding place? What do we mean by a covered? And so forth. Now we know that most commentators believe that this is a statement relating to the holy wrath of God to the divine justice of God. We see here degrees, as it were, of that wrath, of the manifestation of that, the anger of God, the justice of God demanding holiness. And then maybe that gives us a clue. If that is so, then we can understand what it is. But we have to go back to the very beginning of creation to understand this statement as it is related to us here. We have to go back to Adam. And if we go back to Adam, we see that God created Adam as a representative head. He created Adam as a human being, as a perfect human being, perfect in perfect holiness, in complete harmony with God. And we see Adam standing before God. And God could say of Adam that he was satisfied with that creation, that he was very good. God could say of all the creation of Adam, of all the creation of the worlds and of the universe, everything he did, 
started was very good. But then, when God created man at the very beginning, we see God in a very sort of, shall I, sell, shall I say, dark way, hidden way. We don't see much about God. We don't understand much about God at that very early point. For the first statement we have in the Word of God, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We do that doesn't tell us much about God. We know that God is powerful. If we read that statement, that statement is enough to tell you that you are dealing with a being who is omnipotent, who's got all power. He creates things out of nothing. Who can create things out of nothing? Like this God. He called the worlds out of nothing, and the worlds were there. He created all things out of nothing, but he did, did not create man out of nothing. He created man from a substance that was there in that creative act in which he engaged before. Man was created out of the dust of the earth. And this God, we know of his power when we read in, in Genesis of his great acts of creation. But then there is something else that happens that worries us when we read this narrative, when we read the story of creation. We see something happening that shows, tells us something else about God. And my word, it should worry us. And it should worry you tonight. And it should worry me tonight. And something entered into the creation of God. Some strange phenomenon. Some strange element. And the scriptures speak about it and relate to it as the mystery of iniquity. When God created man in holiness, God created man in perfection, but then some alien factor entered the creation of God. And we can say, why? Why the God who is omnipotent? I thought he was omnipotent. I thought he had all authority in heaven and in earth. I thought all things were under his control. I thought that God was all-powerful and if he created everything in absolute holiness, why would he allow anything to come into his creation, to mar his creation, this God? And let me say this before I go on, just to say one or three words about that. Let me say this, that, we, that there is an attribute of God that none of us here tonight would know about if it wasn't for that alien factor that came into his creation, and that is wrath, that attribute of God, which we call the holy wrath of God, it would never have emerged, although it was there, maybe, maybe I shouldn't speak like that, but anyway, it was manifested because of sin, and sin is the only factor, sin is the only phenomenon that can arouse the wrath of God, Without sin, wrath would never have been manifested in God. But sin stimulates the wrath of God, and God is violently opposed to evil. And if we would only grasp that, how God is so opposed to evil, God will not countenance evil. God must deal with evil. And sin is that 
alien factor which God is going to deal with in this creation. It came into this creation, but God is not going to allow it to remain in that realm where the people of God are going to spend all eternity forever. I know on the authority of the Word of God, I know that what I'm saying is true because the Word of God tells me nothing can enter into it that worketh iniquity or maketh a lie. At the very start of creation, God permitted evil to enter into his creation, but after when this new creation will come, the new Jerusalem, when the people of God this new will be in this new heaven and the new earth that the word of God tells us about. Evil will no more be in there. There will be no more evil. There will be no more sin. God allowed it this time. And all I can say when I put the question before and I spoke about that the other day, but let me say it again. When we ask that question, why, if God is omnipotent, if God is all-powerful, if, God, if God's got authority over all, why did he allow it? Then there is something else too. There is another attribute of God. And we wouldn't know it in this fashion if God had not allowed it. And that attribute is the greatest one as far as we are concerned. Without it, we wouldn't have any hope. And that is the love of God. If it wasn't that God permitted, permitted sin to enter his creation, then the people of God could never sing the song of Moses and the Lamb. The people of God could never say these words unto him who loved us and gave himself for us. The people, Adam and his posterity, would never know what it would be to see the love of God in such a wonderful and deep way in sending his son into the world and dying the cursed death of the cross. Adam was out there when God created him. He was holy. He was still in the Garden of Eden. Remember, he was still in the Garden of Eden. And Adam had complete communion with God and perfect communion with God. But now the people of God aren't out there in the Garden of Eden anymore. The people of God, when I read his word, I learn from the word of God that they are at the very throne of the universe. That they are at the very throne of God. And they are surrounding the throne of God. And this is a wonderful thing. The, before Adam was created, Lord and the angels. But now, we read about the angels tonight. But now the people of God are taken right into the presence of God, into the throne of God. And the angels who were created higher than they were, they are now ministering spirits sent out to minister to those who are heirs of salvation. And if God hadn't permitted sin to enter this world, we wouldn't have known about this. We wouldn't have known about this love. We wouldn't have known about being made partakers of the divine nature. We wouldn't have known about that glorious interaction between God and his people and the communion of saints. We would never have known about the communion of saints. And what can we say? Who is a God like unto thee who forgives sins? What can we say but the wisdom of God? The wisdom 
of God, the love of God, and the salvation of our God. But then, let me, I digress, let me go back to what I was saying before. In this sin that entered into the creation of God, Adam sinned. And now I'm, I want to relate this to a man being made a hiding place from the wind and a covered from the tempest. Adam sinned, and the curse came in when Adam sinned. And as soon as Adam sinned, he exposed the whole of his posterity, the whole of the human race. He exposed the whole of our race to terrible danger. I spoke about the wrath of God, that attribute of God. As soon as Adam sinned, he was aware there was something wrong. He was aware that he was under threat. Because I see when I read the word that Adam tried to hide himself. He tried to hide himself from God. Why did he try to hide himself? This idea of a hiding place came into his mind. Where will I hide from God? And we see that Adam tried to hide himself from God because he knew that there was something now in relation to God that he didn't know about before, and that was this factor, this attitude we call the wrath of God. And Adam was aware of some threat. Adam, where art thou? Adam, where art thou? The voice of God cried out. We see even at this early time, we see the mercy of God in action. We see the love of God in action. Adam, where art thou? God could have come out at that very moment in great wrath and condemned him forever to eternal damnation. You know what happened to the angels? Uh, we know that it is not, uh, that we do not have much information about these angels who fell at the very beginning. But we know that they, from, from the word of God, we know that they were excluded from the mercy of God. They were not given a chance the way we were given a chance. Adam was given a chance. He tried to hide himself from God, but the voice of God came. Adam, where are you? And you know, Adam wasn't like the psalmist who learned about God so much more about God because of the scriptures, because of the experience he had of God. The psalmist who could say, if I may go up to heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, thou art there. If I go to the uttermost parts of the sea, to any realm, where thou art there. The psalmist knew this was very hard, but here was Adam trying to hide from God. And I said, what a sin to the head. We all fell with him, and we all came under the terrible threat of the wrath of God. Oh my, how dangerous this was. Adam pulled us all in with him. Every one of us, we were pulled into it. And the amazing thing is, the amazing thing in all this is that God chose to be involved in it. That God chose to be involved in this terrible tempest that we speak about this wilderness of this world. When Adam turned by one act of disobedience, he turned the whole of creation into a place that we may turn a wilderness. A place of disobedience 
a place where the curse rested on, the terrible curse, and when we think that he pulled us all into it. But from then when we reflect on this wonderful step in the salvation of God, that God involved himself in the curse. Cursed is every man that hangs on a tree. And when I say, and a man shall be a hiding place, if God was going to show mercy to the human race, it would have to be a man that would atone. We read in the epistle to the Hebrews that he did not take the nature of ancient son. If God was going to have mercy on these angels who fell and he sinned against them, it would have to be a representative of the angels who would have to atone for these angels, this group of beings who fell and sinned against God. It would be, have to be one of them. Now, speaking with all reverence, with all reverence, God could not say unless one of ourselves could make amends. One of us, one of ourselves would have to make amends. One of us would have to atone a representative of the human race. Nothing short of that would do. But God looked down from the heights of his holiness and we can see and we can read in the word of God when God looked down there was nobody to represent us. Why? Because there was not one who was good. Every one of us, we were full of sin because of Adam's first sin. And we were full of corruption. We were full of iniquity and we were full of evil. So not only that, we were against God and we were against everything that God stood for. We were going away from God and we didn't live just the other way. As a whole, as the, as the whole race, just the other way, away from God. And not one could be found amongst the sons of men that would be a representative. And then we also often hear today about the incarnation. What a wonderful teaching that is, that God saw that not one of us would do. Now we know that this relates back to the counsel of God from all eternity. But we have told the word of God that not one of us was holy in his presence. So therefore, what did God do? And this is the wonder of salvation. This is the wonderful work that we read of in the word of God. The wonderful involvement of God in the curse in this wilderness of ours, that God himself came down to this world, that God himself, there was none of us, so God himself took on the form of man. He came down to this world as a man. And why we then, at this stage, we can understand what it means that man shall be a hiding place from the wind and a cover from the tempest, it is now that we see that God who existed from all eternity, God revealed in the flesh the mystery of Godliness, the mystery of the whole universe, the mystery of everything around us. This is the great mystery that God would be revealed in the flesh. 
and God came down as their representative. We all fell in Adam, but now we have a new Adam. Now we have a new representative standing in for us, and there is a terrible wind out there. There is a terrible tempest. We do not understand so often when we speak about the wind and the tempest that the Lord our Savior had to stand against. The reality of it seems to escape us. God was really angry with him. God was angry with him. The wrath of God did come upon him. When I read here that man shall be a hiding place from the wind and a covered from the tempest, then I have to take note. I have to be careful about it. I have to see that this is something that is very solemn and something that has to be handled with great care. Now the idea I said before us here is a wilderness. And I mentioned already that this world became a wilderness when Adam sinned. And the curse came on this world when Adam sinned. And the Lord, when he came into this world as a perfect man, he came into this wilderness. And the, the, the picture that we have here, and it's so often in Hebrew thought, the covers the God covering his people with his feathers. You know what did the Lord said in when he looked over Jerusalem and when he said these words, Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often, how often he would have saved them, but they would not. He would have gathered them together as a hen gathers her chickens together, but you would not. How often we see in the Psalms the same idea coming up. How this God would have covered us up. But now with the picture that we have here is a wilderness, a wild, howling wilderness. And there is nothing like a wilderness which is so bare and barren that there is nothing like a wilderness for making people feel what it is, for getting people as if it were near to nature, and not only near to nature, but to the dangers of nature. How many people how many people have perished in the wilderness? We see here the people of God, they are in a wilderness. And when they believe on him, they are protected by his grace. And now let me just take you back to maybe a teaching that will help us understand this even a bit more. When the people of God were in Egypt, they had to take or undertake that wilderness journey. And that was a long journey in a, what the Word of God describes, describes as a wild or a raging, howling wilderness, a bare wilderness. There was no shelter, very little shelter. And at the very start, before they commenced that journey, something took place. And that was the Great Passover. The Great Passover was celebrated before they went. And when they came under the cover of this man, his hiding place, they were saved. All the houses of the people of God, they had one thing that the others didn't have, and that is the blood. 
Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. And these people who were going on the wilderness journey, before they undertook that journey, they commanded the blood. They had the covering of the blood. And it is so today with the people of God, they have the covering of the blood. So therefore, the wrath of God is not going to be directed at them because they are under the blood. But let me just also say this, that when the people of God went on this journey through the wilderness, they had a protection. They had the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. That was their protection in the wilderness. And this also signifies Christ. This protection that they had from the elements, from the forces of nature. Now, what we have here is a man, I believe, I've read it over and over again. And the more I read it, the more I come to the conclusion that what we do have is the picture of a man, as if it were, shielding his own loved one, his own child. You know, if you are in a wilderness, I remember flying over the interior of Australia, and I couldn't get over the terrible desert. And you could sometimes see with the wind, the sandstorms being blown about, and how soon people would perish. And we all hear about people who give their lives for loved ones, who cover them up with their own clothes, also in cold climates as well, where people perish by giving their own clothes to their children. And then when the search parties went out, they discovered the parent dead and the child still living. And now I was speaking a minute ago about this wind and tempest, tempest that's representing the wrath of God. But in the very act of the wrath of God, there is a manifestation, a great manifestation of the love of God. And it is this love of God that we see here. And we must not forget the love of God. And the love of God is so great. The love of God is so deep. And it is in connection with this wrath that we see. The wrath going on the one hand and the love going on the other hand. The both actions taking place, place simultaneously. When you think of yourself or when you think of these examples that I mentioned, these people who give their lives, lives for their children in the wilderness or out there in the blizzard, in the snow, giving their lives for their own loved ones. Well, the love of God is much deeper than that. I'm sure there are many people in here tonight who would do their loved ones a very big favor and show love to them. That is only natural. There are many people in here tonight who would show great compassion to their loved ones. I'll even go as far as this. There are people in here tonight who would lay down their lives for their loved ones. They would lay down their lives for their loved ones. And I'm sure most of the people in here tonight would lay down their lives. They wouldn't hesitate. For those whom they love very, very dearly, this is especially true of parents. But the love of God is much deeper than that. Would you show a great favor 
to your loved one, of course you would. But would you show a great favor to your enemy? Would you show a favor to your enemy? If you would show a favor to your enemy, then you are going on another level. And the love of God is deeper than that. Remember that the Lord said to love our enemies. Now I could show a favor maybe to my enemy, but when it comes to loving my enemy, when I'm going to show my enemy a great act of compassion, then that is something that is against me and it goes against my grain. It's against my human nature because my nature is to retaliate. And that is the human nature, the way nature is, that is the way we are without grace. We want to retaliate. I don't want to show any compassion to my enemy unless I have the grace of God in my heart to enable me. And if I do it, praise and glory to him. But the love of God shows compassion to his enemy. But when I read about the love of God, it astounds me. While we were yet enemies, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Would you die for your enemy? Is there anybody in here tonight who would die for their enemy? You would might die for your loved one. Would you die for your enemy? Would you die for your enemy? And when I see this one, a man who is a hiding place from the wind. Remember when I read in the word of God, I read in Romans chapter 5 verse 10, that those people for whom he died, they were enemies. They hated him. And we cannot say we loved him. We hated him. We had no time for God. We are not better than those who will be lost forever. And if there's anything that all of grace will teach us is that we will have no room to boast. And when we see that the love of God is displayed in this fashion that he died for his enemies, and he reconciled us, he put his love in your heart. And this is what love is. This is what the love of God is. So never let us speak about the wrath of God without also declaring his love. His love is so great. The love of God is so great. I could spend hour after hour in here tonight and I could never, ever go very deep into the love of God because of its depth. And nobody in the world can ever declare the, world, the love of God. But as you experience it in your own heart, as the Holy Spirit will enlighten you, that is the experience that you will have of the love of God and you will be amazed, amazed at what? When you see yourself an enemy of God, that he ever had compassion on you. And the more you see of yourself, the more light the Holy Spirit will show into your heart, will shed into your heart, the more you will understand of the love of God. And this is what we have here, a man, a hiding place, from the wind and are covered from the tempest. But now let me just for a minute address those who are not in the love of God. You might say, I do not see wrath. I do not care about the love of God. I do not see you speaking about the wrath of God. 
I do not see any signs of the wrath of God. But we have to be so careful when we speak about the wrath of God. Know that the sinner is in a very precarious place. When I read in Psalm, 30, Psalm 73, I read that has put them in a very slippery place. Thou hast put them in a very slippery place. And if you are in here tonight without Christ, you are in a very slippery place because in one moment the wrath of God could descend on you. And do not think for one moment that God's wrath is greater against those who are lost in eternal partition, partition tonight. God's wrath is against you as much as those who are forever excluded from his mercy. If you are standing without the shelter, if you are standing without Christ, if you do not have the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are in a very dangerous situation before God. There is only one thing holding you from experiencing in its fullness that terrible capital cup that's waiting for the unbelievers and that is timing, timing. God has a time. And every one of us in his counsel and in his purpose when the time comes and we do not know how near it is we do not know any one of us we hear every day of people who are healthy people who are enjoying good health people who have never complained and they go we never know when the voice will when that voice will call us and when that timing will come whenever that is only god knows god is in heaven he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass and your departure and my departure out of this world, it is foreordained and it is fixed and we cannot move it. So therefore, if we're near, if our clock is ticking on, and if it's coming to the midnight hour, we do not know how near it is to the midnight hour, but at that midnight hour, in the experience of every one of us, there it is. Not one moment before, not one moment later, as soon as the midnight hour will come for us, we will, we will have to go. And those who do not know the love of God in Christ, then they will know God. But you know, they were enemies of God. And God will meet them as an enemy. God will meet them as an enemy. No, I don't want to try and uh, labor this too much. But all I know is this that the Lord Jesus Christ who spoke about the love of God more than any of the prophets, more than any of the patriarchs, more than the psalmist. He also spoke about the wrath of God more than any of them. He spoke about the wrath of God more than Elijah, more than Abraham, more than Isaiah, more than Jeremiah. I can name all the prophets. And he spoke about the wrath of God more than they did. And every time he spoke about the wrath of God, it was a warning warning and the lord warns us the word of god warns us but it doesn't keep warning us and there is a reason for the word of god warning us why so that we will be saved so that we will have this 
hiding place from the wind and the covert from the tempest that the word of God tells us. But let me also just make the point, I see the time is going, let me make the point now that the man of whom we speak here, of whom we read here, who is the covert from the wind and who is the hiding place, remember that he had to endure. If, you, if you're outside and if you go for shelter anywhere, your shelter has to take the, bl the brunt of the wind or of the tempest. And the Lord Jesus, he had to take the tempest on himself. And this is what the sacrificial order of the Old Testament speaks to us about. When you read about the sacrifice being burnt up on the altar, when the fire came on that sacrifice, it consumed the sacrifice, and the sacrifice had to be consumed. If it wasn't consumed, it would have to start again. The sacrifice was disqualified. It was, it was a condition of acceptance by the priest that the sacrifice would be burnt entirely. And when we see the Son of God, he took upon himself the condemnation. He was made a curse for us so that these people of God who are under his protection, who are under his shelter, they will never ever experience what he experienced. They cannot experience what he experienced. They will never, ever experience the wrath of God and dilute it the way he experienced it. And let us again make this point that the Lord did suffer the wrath of God. That the Lord on the cross, when he had that terrible experience, that awful experience of separation, that he had to endure a terrible amount of the wrath of God. And now I can't feel qualified to speak about that tonight or any other night. But all I can say is that I can see the love of God operating when the wrath of God operated too. And also I should make the point to the unconverted. I should have made it before. You know, there is a tempest waiting a great tempest, and that tempest we read about tonight, you know the worlds that we have here, this everything has got a stamp of permanency on it. Everything is going to last forever. When I look at the mountains or the eternal hills, when I look at the stars, they're going to last forever. When I look at all the nature, the forces of nature around about me, then I must say how I feel that everything is going to endure. Generation after generation will pass away, but these things seem to last forever. But you know, there's a great tempest waiting for the whole universe. There's a terrible, when I read about a tempest here tonight, what a great tempest is waiting for this world of ours, for the whole universe. They shall go, this is what I read in the epistle to the Hebrews, they shall all be rolled up like a scroll, they shall all be melted up, they shall all go, the worlds, there shall be no place found for them in the presence of him who will sit on the throne. They shall terrible tempest waiting, oh blessed will they be at that day who will have the hiding place and the cover from the tempest when they have that covering, when they, shall, when they have the shelter 
the eternal shelter of the Son of God, how blessed they will be. But what a terrible experience for those when that terrible tempest comes into the universe of God. What a terrible experience it will be for them. But uh, again, I don't, do not feel that I should labor that too much. But let me now go just for a moment to the other part of the passage and then I will, conclu I will conclude. And we also see that this man, he is represented as rivers of water in a dry place, as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. Rivers of water in a dry place, as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. Now we know what it is like, well we know when we read, we do not know it in our own experience, but uh, those who have had this experience tell us what it is like to be in a desert, what it is like to experience thirst, to experience heat, to experience the terrible uh, forces of nature as if it were driving us to despair. We've read about that. And you know, I think uh, when I read this that it relates to the people of God, the people of God who have had the experience of conversion, who had had the experience of passing from darkness to light. They are the people that this uh, passage is referring to because we, we are told here that the man who shall be as a hiding place from the wind and a cover from the tempest, he is also going to be as rivers of water in a dry land. I remember when the people of Israel, when they went through the desert, when they went through the wilderness, they needed water. Anybody going through the desert will need water. Without water, we can never survive in the desert. And these uh, people of God, this is indeed their great strength that they have water. They do have water, but there's something else about them. They are aliens. Now, if you are aliens in a hostile environment, it is more difficult for you to overcome. It is more difficult for you to survive. I see that in Australia, the, Aborigine, the, the Aborigines. They seem to be able to withstand the heat of the desert like uh, people like us, we, we couldn't stand it. But they are able to stand it. Now, the people of God, they are aliens in this world, and they would perish in this world. They would perish in this terrible desert in which they are. But I read in the Word of God that they have a spring, a spring of water following them through the wilderness. And the Word of God tells me that this water is Christ, that this spring in which they are in connection with, this spring is Christ. And uh, no matter what they suffer in this wilderness, and my word, this is a wilderness for the people of God. This is a terrible place for the people of God as far as the, their spiritual lives is concerned. This is a, an experience for them that they cannot endure readily. But my grace is sufficient for you. The grace of God is sufficient for you because they are connected by faith through Christ, to Christ Jesus their Savior. And no, they, they feel this dryness, they feel the thirst, they feel what it is to be parched, they know what it is, that they have this source of water all the time, and they drink of this water right through this wilderness. And although they are aliens in this wilderness, the Lord their God has made sure for them that he has provided for them an eternal spring. Remember what the Lord said to the woman of Samaria, 
You shall thirst again when you drink of this water, but the water that I shall give you, it shall be an eternal spring, if you like. It shall spring up forever, and you shall never thirst. Now the people of God never thirst in that in a way that is life-threatening to them. They never thirst in a way that is life-threatening to their souls because they are linked, if you like, to the source of life, to the water of life. Now let me make, make it clear at this stage that blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Why? Because they shall be filled. Now how is it if they have water, if they're connected to this source, this spring of water, how is it then that they experience thirst? That is something quite different. All God's people would like every day of their lives to feed at his feet, to drink that water in great abundance. But we will have enough of it in this world as God sees fit to sustain our lives through the wilderness of this world. He will give us sufficient but sometimes when we want a feast, that is like an oasis. If you're walking through the wilderness and you come to, uh, to an oasis, if you come to that place where you can sit down and rest, that is something quite different. Now the people of God have that experience in the world. God's people, sometimes they have a feast in the world, if you like, a feast of spiritual things, but then they experience famine and they experience drought. But let me again emphasize, they are still connected to the source of life, to that well of water, and they will not die. They will, they cannot die. Their spiritual lives will go on forever. And that rock is Christ, that well of water that follows them through the wilderness, it is Christ.